0: Psalm 47, God is king over all the earth. To the choir master, a psalm of the son of Koran. Koran. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to the Lord with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord, with the sound of a trumpet, sings praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with, the, with a psalm. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy thorn, throne. The prince of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God, he has highly exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody.
1: For the service, I was out there in the lobby, and I saw a couple of books that I just thought I should tell you a little bit about. One of them is called Taking God at His Word, and it's just about the power of the Word of God. People have said that after reading through this, their submission to God's Word and their love for God's Word is sweeter. Uh, so it's a book that I'd really recommend to you. And then this one is called Uprooting Anger, uh, and if it bothers you that I've suggested you read this book, then you probably should. Um, LAUGHTER Biblical help for a common problem. The funny thing, actually, about this book is that I didn't really think I had an anger problem until I read it. But it's one of those things. Well, some of you are like, "Uh, yeah. But uh, but it really is a really good book. I'd recommend it to every single human being, and I think you'd really enjoy this. Some of us express anger with yelling. Other people express anger with uh, sadness and quietness and things. But uh, but that book is an excellent book for, uh, for identifying that and helping us to deal with anger in appropriate biblical ways. Well, let's jump into Exodus chapter 22. If you'd like to join me there, in Exodus chapter 22, we'll begin in verse 28. There's a wonderful quote by Galileo uh, about why the old traditions should be questioned in regard to the sciences. Uh, so here's what he said. He said, for in the sciences... The authority of thousands of opinions is not worth as much as one tiny spark of reason in an individual man. Besides, the modern observations deprive all former writers of any authority since if they had seen what we see, they would have judged as we judge. It's a good argument. He made that argument, of course, about science and his attitude toward leaders was actually very admirable and he was right in so many ways. But you know that in the generations that followed Galileo, people woke up to a universe that was very different from what they had been taught by the church. People started to question the church and the king and pretty much everything in all the old ways. And a lot of that was very good. The push for independence in all of life led to things like the Declaration of Independence, one of the real bright spots of Western civilization. But there were unintended consequences Western people today are unlikely to know how to submit to authority. In fact, the very idea of that sounds demeaning. The Bible's perspective, or God's perspective, is different as it relates to submission to authority. God does want people with brains on. Reason is an important part of religion, but God also wants people with brains on to honor authority. And that's the trick. And that's what we need to relearn how to do. And the Bible shows us how. It's a difficult lesson considering our upbringing, our surrounding. But we can learn how, with brains on, do we submit to authority. So we're continuing here through Exodus this morning. We're in chapter 22. And we're looking at some Old Testament laws about respect for authority. Beginning in verse 28, this law, this one sentence here has to do with cursing. This law says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. This has to do with disrespect for God and disrespect for the leaders that God puts in our lives. And you notice those two words, revile and curse. If you have an NIV, uh, the words would be blaspheme and curse. And in the Hebrew, the words are synonyms. The difference has to do with their intensity, but there's not really a nuance between them, at least in the original language. And they both have to do with cursing. So they all fall under sort of a semantic range of words that are about cursing. And we're supposed to not curse God and not curse rulers. So what is a curse? Let's make sure that we understand that because in English, the word curse means a couple of different things. Uh, The S word is a curse word. Uh, But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about cursing. It's not a foul mouth and that sort of a thing. It's more like a cursed sports team that can't win the World Series. Uh, Cursing in the ancient world wasn't just bad luck, but it came from someone. Bad things are happening as a result of someone putting a curse on another person. In fact, you know the first cursor in the Bible is God. In fact, God is probably the biggest cursor in the Bible, Uh, He began by cursing the serpent and Adam and Eve, and uh, we have another example of cursing in the book of Joshua. After the city of Jericho was destroyed, then here's what Joshua said. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates so Joshua put a curse on whoever it was that came along later and tried to rebuild the city of Jericho which we see happen in 1 Kings chapter 16 this was under the king Ahab and Ahab was a big doofus he really uh, rejected the Lord in many different ways and what we hear here in 1 Kings 16 Ahab did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him In his days, heel of Bethel built Jericho. And so that should remind us way back on the memory chip of what happened many books before when Joshua put a curse on whoever rebuilds Jericho. So in the days, in his days, Ahab's days, heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Ibram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Shegub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. We're not exactly sure what they mean, if just misfortune came into their lives or if they died. It is archaeologically interesting that under the gates they did find bones, human bones. I was very surprised to see that this week as I was researching. So God, again, is probably the biggest cursor in the Bible, and we see curses coming from God toward others. Proverbs 3.33 will remind you of that whole range of stuff. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. So that's what the word curse means. It's not just a foul mouth using swear words and stuff like this, but it is powerful words that bring harm or even evil into another person's life. Now, unlike many religions, you think maybe a voodoo religion or something like this, where anybody can put a curse on anybody and you protect yourself from these random curses by wearing amulets and charms and things like this. Biblical religion is not like that. Unlike many religions where a curse might come out of nowhere... In the Bible, a curse has to be justified. And we see this in Proverbs 26, verse 2. It says, Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. A curse that is causeless does not alight. In other words, God is in charge of blessing and cursing. You can't just call down a curse on somebody because you don't like them or their dogs are barking too loud in the middle of the night or something like that. You can't just curse anybody for any reason. You certainly... Must not curse God, and you certainly cannot curse the leaders that God puts into our lives and that is because God wants us to respect authority, and that 's the central thing here. The emphasis is not necessarily on the cursing. the emphasis here has to do with respect for authority proverbs twenty twenty says if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. Uh, you see, so God puts Uh, authority in our lives he wants us to honor not curse authority if you've seen the the television show the west wing you might remember the west wing from about 10 years ago or or and and i remember on that show uh, that president bartlett was very close friends with uh his chief of staff, Leo McGarry, and it was just interesting how every time Leo came into the uh, Oval Office, he always put his jacket on. It could have been 1 o'clock in the morning. It could have been a very potentially casual moment. He always put his jacket on when he came into the West Wing, and he always spoke to Jeb Bartlett, his friend, as Mr. President. Uh, There's something about the role that demands respect, and that's remarkable. It was precious on the show, but it's remarkable because it's so rare In our culture, Americans think that it is demeaning to submit to someone, but think about the relationship of Jesus Christ, the son, uh, to his father and to the church. Think about these relationships for a minute. There is great glory in a son's submission to a father, and there is great glory in a bride's submission to her bridegroom, and these human relationships then reflect the cosmic truths that hold all goodness, truth, and beauty together. So this little verse in Exodus 22 explains a very important thing not to do. Do not curse God. Do not. This would be the ultimate form of disrespect for an authority figure. So everything else under that category obviously counts as well. Do not disrespect God. Do not disrespect men and women that God puts over us. Now, Job's wife is probably the most famous God curser. You remember her. Uh, all kinds of terrible things have happened. It's hard to be judgmental of her. How would I act if I were in her situation and so on? So we certainly don't want to make fun of her. Uh, but she did curse God in Job chapter 2. She'd been surrounded by terrible things. And she said to her husband, Job, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. In other words... Look at all this tragedy. There wasn't any question in her mind about whether or not God existed. The idea of atheism didn't come on the scene for a couple of thousand years after that. She knew that all of the stuff that had happened in her life was as a result of God somewhere behind the scenes, either causing or allowing these things to happen. So she's saying, look at all of this. God is not good. God has done badly here. And that's what she means when she says, curse God and die. But Job knew that it is never okay to curse God, that God is always worthy of honor. And so he rebukes his wife. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? God is always good. God is always good and it's never okay to curse or disrespect him. Habakkuk 3.17 to 19. It's the climax of that book, and we've looked at that recently here, but it's just such a precious section of scripture. Let me read you this paragraph. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So Job and Habakkuk lived under God with respect in all circumstances. Paul shows us a similar example in the New Testament. And this attitude of respect toward God, even when he does or allows things that we don't understand, things that are difficult, things that are hard, things that seem unjust, is he paying attention? Does he know what's going on? Why wouldn't he do this and that kind of thing when stuff happens, when bad stuff happens, it's. Important for us to have a respectful attitude toward God. And that same thing happens in our human relationships when God puts us under the authority of a human being. We do not always understand our human leaders. They do things we don't like. They make us do things that we don't want to do. They don't do some of the things that we want them to do. And it can be very frustrating to live under authority uh, We have the additional problem with human leaders that they are human and so we sometimes are tempted to see them as peers and they even make mistakes and they even sin. So the question is, will we put our jackets on, so to speak, when we speak to parents or church elders or husbands or Sunday school teachers or whatever it may be when God puts us under authority? 1 Peter 2.13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. Romans 13, half the chapter is on this subject, and so I'm just reading one verse to remind you of what the whole thing says, but you may want to look at the entire chapter later on today. It says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, why is honor owed to someone? It's because of a position. It doesn't necessarily have to be earned, but certain positions are worthy of honor, and it is a glory to give honor where honor is due. Very interesting things happen in our hearts when we think about Christ in our relationships in regard to elders, governors, police, husbands, parents, teachers, and so on. The son of God's relationship to the father shows us that subordination is a glorious thing and also central to salvation and what relationships are supposed to look like. The church's relationship to Christ as the head of the church shows that giving honor is not demeaning, but it is an honor itself that I might have this kind of relationship. Is it possible that the words come out that come out of our mouth can enhance the beauty of these relationships instead of tearing them down? So these anti-cursing laws have to do with respect for authority. Let's look at one more law here, verse 29 to 31. There's another way to show proper respect to God, and that is by giving him the firstborn. So let's look at how this law worked. Exodus 22, verse 29, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. So this passage here, this law or this combination of laws has to do with dedication. Uh, God commanded the Israelites to dedicate the firstborn to him. It's interesting that Pharaoh killed the firstborn sons of Exodus and God came along some years later and killed the firstborn of Pharaoh During the last plague. This is important. Firstborn sons are important. Abraham and Isaac, you remember the sacrifice uh, or near sacrifice of Isaac where God told Abraham to go up to the mountain. We often retell that story as being merely about obedience. Is he going to pass this test of doing some outrageous thing? But even deeper than that, it has to do with the question of, of dedication. Is Abraham willing to sacrifice what is most precious to him? His firstborn is he willing to worship God that deeply, so how did they do it? How do you give a firstborn to God? Now, if it was an animal, it would be burned as a sacrifice exodus thirteen eleven we see a little bit more of these laws. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as He swore to you and to your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the lords and the way that this worked is when they were a certain number of days old they would be burned on an altar as a, a way of dedicating or giving this animal to god but there's an accept, there's an interesting exception clause for donkeys of, of of all things donkeys got an exception clause to this and so look at verse 13. You don't have to look at this if you're not already in Exodus 13. But Exodus 13, 13 says, Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. So the logic here, the logic here is, that, is that donkeys are unclean, and so God does not want a donkey on his altar. But it still needs to be dedicated to him. So you have a couple of options of how you're going to dedicate the donkey to him. A couple of options. One, you can break its neck. and and kill it that way, but we don't want it on the altar because that'll defile the altar. The other thing you can do is you can redeem it with a substitute lamb. It's interesting. We'll come back to that in a second. But what do you do with a firstborn son? We're not going to sacrifice a firstborn son on an altar because human beings are made in God's image with unparalleled creation value. So we don't sacrifice children on altars. And I'm not saying that to be funny. Some Canaanite religions uh, did offer firstborn sons on altars. In Second Kings chapter 17, there was a king named Hoshea. You probably haven't heard of Hoshea. Uh, he was the guy on the throne when the Northern Kingdom was completely destroyed. Uh, the people at that point had com- had totally rejected. Biblical religion and had adopted all of the practices in a syncretistic way from the religions around them. So listen to this in 2nd Kings 17. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped, worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings And used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. The northern kingdom was not taken into captivity, but they were wiped out as a result of So profoundly rejecting God, 2 Kings 17 is filled with a list of things that they had done to reject the Lord. I'm just reading this one section here that they actually took their sons and daughters and offered them on altars, burning them alive in order to offer them to uh, these foreign gods child sacrifices disgusting human beings must be redeemed we kind of know that deep inside us it's part of a conscience that God has put into every human being It was a deep perversion and rejection of God to do something different from that we know human beings must be redeemed and human beings are different from animals so we're not making a PETA argument here that we shouldn't kill anything there's a difference between a human being and animals it was all right to sacrifice an animal but you absolutely must not sacrifice a human being because human beings are made in the image of God and have unparalleled creation value so it's interesting that God allowed the donkey exception to apply to human beings he he brought in the the donkey clause to apply to human beings it's interesting Exodus 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So you've got two options with a donkey, only one option here with a human being. Something has to die for that firstborn in order to dedicate it to the Lord. It's got to be dedicated to the Lord, and the way to do that is through death. It's got to be dedicated, but for a human being, you don't kill your firstborn son as an offering to the Lord. Unparalleled creation value must be redeemed with the substitute lamb. Interesting. The point of all of this is to consecrate the firstborn. That's a big Bible word, but it appears many times, so let's define it. What is consecration? Same thing as sanctification. It's the same word. So what does it mean? Consecrate or to sanctify means to set something apart for God. God wants us to be dedicated to him, not as smoke rings from the ashes but as living, joyful, worshipful people that live in his home. And that is only possible through substitute death. We are also unclean because of sin. But God loves us, and God provides a substitute to die in our place. In the New Testament, this is all explained. Here's an example, 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, in a nutshell, the Bible tells me that I am a sinner for rebelling against God's rule in my life. The penalty of sin is death, not simply bodily death, but eternal death in a place called hell where God expresses his wrath against sinners forever. But God is ridiculously loving and compassionate. He sent his son Jesus Christ to die in my place as a substitute. He died on the cross for me so that the death penalty of sin could be paid by a substitute. And if I repaint, repent, which repaint, if I repaint and sit on a thorn, then I will be forgiven for my sin. And if I trust Christ with my entire life, then he becomes my Savior. I become his child. And instead of hell, I look forward to eternity. I look forward to heaven. reconciled to God. Bob Coughlin wrote a beautiful hymn called The Gospel Song. And and he wrote this. It's a beautiful poetic way of explaining the gospel. He says, holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin. By his death, I live again. So it's interesting here that God uses the donkey clause exception for us. We are also unclean. We must not be put on an altar. God loves us, and he insists that a redemption happen here. Absolutely not. Kill that kid. I want him. I want him. And I don't want him as smoke rings going up into my nostrils. I want him playing in my front yard every day. That's my kid. You will redeem that firstborn. It's mine. Now, none of these consecration laws are binding on us today, but you can see the value of studying them during times like this. I think there are three clear things to learn from these old consecration laws. First of all, all things belong to God. All things belong to God. Not only did God create all things, and therefore he is the owner of all things, but he also makes us temporary stewards, and our attitude must be a constant this belongs to you, a constant giving back. I love that it 's a ritual in the old testament, and i 'm not arguing that we go back to Old Testament laws, but there is an advantage to having something built into religious practice. this wasn 't just a mindset every so often every year or two or whatever whatever we remember on a Sunday morning that everything I have belongs to God, but there was a, there, there, Jewish religion required a process where a kid wakes up in the morning and goes with dad and probably the whole family with a lamb. And they go to the temple and on the way or the day before or as they're leading up to it, they have a conversation like all of us would have. And like we do have when we're trying to explain communion to our kids or why do people get baptized, things like this. Kids are like, why are we doing this? So you have a father or a mother who says, look, son, you are not mine. You belong to God. And he can do whatever he wants with you. Look, I would die for you, son, but he loves you even more. All things belong to God. We are helped, I think, by religious practice that reminds us of these great truths. Another thing, second thing of three that these old laws remind us of is that everything about my life is designed to honor God with joy. Everything about my life is designed to honor God with joy Classic passage, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There are no private moments for the Christian where we have an exception or a period of time where we can not worship or not glorify God. All of life is lived under God, for God, in honor of God. 1 Timothy one sixteen, Paul says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Everything about my life is designed to honor God with joy. And finally, the third thing I think that leaps off the page from these Old Testament consecration laws is, is that my right relationship with God is based on substitutionary sacrifice. My right relationship with God and that right relationship with God is number two, glorifying and enjoying God in all things. My right relationship with God as his child, glorifying him in all things, is based on substitutionary atonement. That's the center of it. That's the foundation of it. God loves me, and he made it possible to punish my sin with a substitute. His son, Jesus Christ, his own firstborn. That death made it possible for my sins to be forgiven so that I can glorify God and enjoy him forever. He adopts me as his child. He commands me to build his church. He gives me his word. He sends me his Holy Spirit. He makes so many promises. He's coming again soon. And all of that, the beauty of that relationship is possible because of of the substitutionary death, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We even sang about that earlier this morning, which is really cool. My right relationship with God is based on substitutionary sacrifice. I am also unclean like a donkey, but the blood of the lamb brings me into his home. Let me close here with Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We were not designed for independence. God is sovereign over all creation. All things belong to him. He is worthy of all praise and all honor. He designed us to live under him and under the leaders that he appoints. So may God fill us with the attitude of Christ and our relationships with each other. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you again for giving us your word. And I pray that you would help us to live joyfully and obediently under your word until you return for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.